If you would, uh, please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to begin our time reading a passage from 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, 1 to 13. Peter says this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring uh, up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This morning marks our last message in the Olivet Discourse. We've been on the Olivet Discourse for around four months now. Actually, believe it or not, we've been on the same day of Jesus' life, the Tuesday before His crucifixion, for almost a year now. We started in June of last year, so that makes about 11 months on Passion Tuesday. You'll recall that that day started with Jesus' cursing of the fig tree. He then entered the temple where the religious leaders made one last attempt to publicly discredit Him at the height of His popularity by openly challenging Him to a kind of theological debate. By the end of that debate, Jesus had so thoroughly exposed the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders that as He was was moved to openly condemn the, uh, the religious leadership right there in the temple grounds at the very heart of the nation's public and religious life. As Jesus then reflected on the consequences of what was taking place, His emotions were stirred. And He lamented the great devastation that would soon visit that generation of Israelites with the destruction of Jerusalem. It's hard to say exactly how Jesus felt as He left the temple that day for the very last time. No doubt there was some anger. That much was evident from the tone of the public denunciation of the Pharisees. However, this lament at the end indicates that there was also a kind of disappointment. Jesus was apparently incredibly saddened and distressed over the fate of His people. For whatever reason, the disciples failed to pick up the significance of what Jesus was saying. Rather than being sobered by everything that He had declared, they were so obtuse as to actually marvel over the temple's beauty as they left that day. 
Jesus therefore made it incredibly clear for them. He said, you see all these, do you not? Referring to the temple grounds. He said, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The message apparently got through. Because as Jesus then continued to depart Jerusalem and make his way up to the Mount of Olives, the disciples followed in silence. It was there on the Mount of Olives that Jesus took a seat overlooking the temple and city whose destruction he just proclaimed. And it was there that four of the disciples worked up the courage to ask the question that was on all of their minds, saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? They understood that in in predicting the temple's destruction, Jesus was speaking about the end of the age. The temple's destruction was tied to the 69th and 70th weeks in Daniel 9. And so they asked Jesus to fill the details in for them. And thus began the sermon that we've been studying for the past four months, in which we conclude this morning a passage known today as the Olivet Discourse. What we've learned over the course of these four months is that the day of the Lord can come at any moment. There will be many signs that will occur during the day of the Lord, which will announce Jesus coming at the end in judgment. But as to the day itself, Jesus compares it to a thief in the night, meaning it will come entirely without warning. It could happen as soon as the temple's destruction, which occurred in 70 AD, or it could take, as Peter notes here in 2 Peter 3, a thousand years, perhaps two thousand years, perhaps more. There's just no way of knowing when the day of the Lord would happen. One thing we do know, though, it will happen. As Peter states, there are some who suppose that because it's been so long, that Jesus is never coming back. They say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And of course, as Peter notes, what they miss is that to the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Time doesn't work the same way for God as it does for you or I. What may seem like an eon for us is but a blink of an eye for Him. He is not slow to fulfill His promise, as you and I would count slowness. Rather, He is patient. He is patient specifically towards you, as Peter explains, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has a people in mind that He has prepared for the day of redemption. And so rather than immediately judging the earth and destroying the wicked as is deserved, He instead waits so that all His beloved might receive the blessing of promise that He's prepared for them. So Jesus is coming back. Sure, there has been a delay. Jesus actually predicted a delay as early as the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. So there's been a delay, but He is coming. The question is, though, are you ready for it? When he comes, there is going to be only one thing in your life that matters, and that will be whether or not you have a right relationship with God. So many of the things that we consume our lives with right now, for instance, our careers, our bank accounts, our homes, our hobbies, none of that will matter at the appearance of the Lord Jesus. All those things will seem very small in the light of his glory. All that will matter then is whether or not God finds you acceptable in his sight, worthy to enter into his kingdom. The Scripture tells us that there's only one way for that to happen, and that's by virtue of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every man and woman stands condemned before God on account of their sin, so the only way that He will accept you or me or any one of us is if the righteousness of Christ is applied to our sins. 
Jesus is the only man truly worthy to enter into the kingdom on account of his own righteousness, because only he is sinless. Only he obeyed perfectly in every single aspect of his life. In fact, it is because of this obedience that God has bestowed on him the name above every name and the right to rule over the earth according to the design originally intended in Adam. And so now the only way that we can enter into his kingdom is if he owns us. It's if he claims us before the Father and declares of us, they belong to me. I died for them. It's only on the basis of his imputed righteousness and atoning sacrifice for sin that you or I or anyone else can enter into the kingdom. So the only thing that will matter when Jesus returns is, does his righteousness apply to you? Or to put it another another way, does he know you? Well, does he? Does he know you? Are you ready for his return? This is a concept that we've been discussing over the past several weeks. In the last leg of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has been applying the theology of his return by explaining to his disciples how to be ready for his appearing. He's told them, for instance, that they need to be ready for both a near and a far coming. Basically, just like Peter says here in 2 Peter 3, there's no telling when Jesus will return. It could be tomorrow. It could be another thousand years from now. This means that the disciples need to live in a state of constant readiness. They need to live on one hand as if Jesus were to return tomorrow, while at the same time settling in, embracing themselves for a long wait. Jesus has also told his disciples about the criteria that he will use to determine admission into the kingdom. That's been our topic over the past several weeks as we've studied the parable of the talents. And this is where this idea of readiness has really come into focus. This is where we have started to get a clear picture of what it takes to be ready for Jesus' return. What this parable has shown us is that when Jesus comes back, he's going to look for faithfulness. This is important. He's not going to look for perfection. It's not the amount of obedience that Jesus will be looking for, but He will be looking at the character of a person's life upon His return. As we've looked at that parable, we've seen that specifically, He will be looking to see if a person has performed the positive expressions of righteousness that He's described in places like the Sermon on the Mount. It's the quality of the obedience that He's looking for, not the quantity. He will expect His disciples to be good stewards of what He's entrusted to them, meaning that they've taken an offensive mindset to righteousness instead of a defensive one. The reason for this we've seen is because grace, grace produces this sort of an attitude. Again, this is very important. As Jesus describes the criteria he'll use to judge between one disciple and another, he pushes for a type of obedience in his answer. However, this is not, this is not because works save. Rather, it's because confidence in the grace of God naturally produces a certain type of fruit. It is faith alone that establishes a relationship with Jesus, but it is a certain type of faith. It is a faith expressed not in a mere intellectual assent to the gospel, but which is expressed in a wholehearted trust in the very character of God. So such a trust that over time it gradually conforms the life of the believer into the same kind of loving, sacrificial life that Jesus exhibited while here on earth. So if you want to be ready for the return of Jesus, this means you've got to be faithful. Your trust in Christ, if it is genuine, will bubble up into your life. It should change the way you live. This is how you can know that you're ready. When you're practicing this kind of qualitatively different sort of obedience, it's when your life is marked by faithfulness. 
Of course, this begs the question, though, what are we to do specifically? If you recall, we were never able to pin down a specific meaning for the talents. They seem to simply serve as a kind of placeholder to illustrate the relationship between stewardship, faithfulness, and reward. The one who is faithful will be rewarded with much. To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But to the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. That's all the talents appear to illustrate. They don't give us a specific picture of what faithfulness looks like. So, okay, we can, we can see now that our confidence in God and in His grace should manifest itself in our lives. But how? How will we know when our faith is manifesting itself? What will it look like once it bubbles up to the surface? We're going to see one major answer to that question in our passage for this morning. I don't think it is the only answer, but it is, a, it is apparently a very important one. So let's turn now to our passage and see what Jesus has to say. The passage is Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Again, that's Matthew 25, 31 to 46. In this passage, Jesus describes a time of judgment. And as he describes this time of judgment, he explains what the basis will be by which he'll separate one group of people from another. If you want to be ready for the Lord's return, this passage then is very critical. Here is what real faith looks like in action. If you want to discern between someone who has experienced God's grace and someone who has not, this is what you look for. Let's read now and see what Jesus has to say. Matthew 25, 31-46, Jesus concludes the Olivet Discourse with these words. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And, and when, we, when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So once again, in this passage, Jesus is explaining how to be ready for his return. And here he pictures a time of judgment. Specifically, he's jumped forward in the day of the Lord's sequence to the time of his final return. 
In other words, while the bulk of his discussion about readiness has related to the sudden and unexpected collection of the church at the rapture up to this point, here he skips forward to the very end of the day of the Lord when he appears in glory to judge the earth. We know this because in verse 31 he speaks of his coming in glory, which we saw back in chapter 24 occurs when he comes with this brilliant display of light at the very end of the tribulation after the lights of the heavens have been darkened. He speaks also of sitting on His glorious throne, which indicates a reference to the beginning of His earthly reign, which occurs after His destruction of the Antichrist and the binding of Satan in hell. In other words, this is Jesus coming with the angels in judgment of the earth. And the scene that we have depicted here is the victorious Jesus now gathering whoever has survived Armageddon from across the earth, and He's sitting in judgment over them to decide who will and who will not be allowed to enter into His kingdom. So as Jesus explains how to be ready for the day of the Lord, He's painting with a broad brush. On one hand, he's dealing with what's required to be ready for the rapture, since that addresses the issue that's at the heart of the disciples' question. They want to be ready for the day of the Lord. That includes a readiness for the rapture. However, on the other hand, as Jesus explains the criteria he'll use to separate uh, a true disciple from a false one, the believer from the unbeliever, this is best illustrated by this judgment that occurs at the end of the age, at the inauguration of his earthly kingdom. After all, this is where the line is clearly drawn. This is where Jesus very directly says to people, you're in and you're out. So then, what's the standard that Jesus says He'll use to judge people in that day? It's by the way they treated His disciples and by the suffering among His disciples in particular. Jesus gathers the nations of the world in two groups. Just as a shepherd would separate the sheep among his flock from the goats as he gathered the sheep into the sheepfold, so also does Jesus separate the righteous from the unrighteous as he gathers the righteous into his kingdom. He, in, here in verse 43, Jesus says to the sheep who are situated on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom and prepare it for you from the foundation of the world. So they get to enter into the millennial kingdom that Jesus is establishing in a post-Armageddon world. In verses 35 to 36, he explains why, saying, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. In short, Jesus says that these will be claimed by Jesus because they claimed Him in their care for Him. If you notice, this assessment actually surprises these individuals. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They don't understand how Jesus can come to this conclusion. After all, he hadn't been present on the earth until only recently. It was only when he returned to vanquish the Antichrist that he had been physically present on the earth. All the rest of the time up until that point, he had been ascended at the right hand of God. So then, how could they have fed and clothed and visited Jesus. Jesus rejects the goats by the same reasoning in verses 41 to 43. And they express the same kind of shock as the sheep over their assessment in verse 44. Jesus gives the same answer. Those stated it in, in the uh, reverse in both instances. He says to the sheep in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And to the goats, he says in verse 45, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So Jesus points to the care of hurting people 
as an expression of care towards Him. And so the reasoning goes that since the disciple has owned Jesus in this life, through his care for these hurting people, he'll likewise own them in turn in the next. Again, there's a kind of tangible claim to Jesus which is expressed in this care for these suffering people. The people are noted as the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. From this, it's often said that what defines the disciple is compassion on the lowly in society, the poor, the afflicted, and so on. For instance, this passage is often pointed to and was often pointed to in the recent political controversy over the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, it was said that Christians should uh, be in favor of granting asylum to Syrian refugees based on this passage. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't show compassion to hurting people, but, but that's not what this passage is saying. We can see from passages like Matthew 5, 43-48 that we are commanded to love our enemies. Likewise, the story of the Good Samaritan instructs us that from a broad perspective, everyone is our neighbor. And so when God commands us to love our neighbor, that applies to everyone, believer and unbeliever alike. Very clearly, Jesus does not expect us to love only those who love us. As he points out in Matthew 5, even tax collectors can do that. Even unbelievers will love those who love him. There's nothing, there's nothing special about that kind of a love. So again, I want to make myself clear, myself clear. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't command us to love all people. He clearly does. I'm just saying that that's not the point here. Jesus isn't making the distinction between the sheep and the goats based on a person's general love for any afflicted person, but for their love towards His disciples in particular. This is evident from the phrasing that Jesus uses in verse 40 when He says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. He calls these hurting persons His brothers. That's That's not really a reference that He ever applies to unbelievers. He applies it rather to His disciples. Thus it would appear that Jesus is saying that the degree to which one cares for the church and to the suffering in the church in particular is the degree to which you care for Him. He will therefore decide who will enter into his kingdom and who will not based on the way a person cares for his disciples. This interpretation makes sense when you consider both the literary and the historical context of this passage. The Gospel of Matthew, for instance, is very much consumed with the idea of persecution. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, and the introduction to that message is capped with a statement, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Likewise, when Jesus sent the disciples out on their mission in Matthew 10, He warned them, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And of course, in Matthew 16, He declared, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. And And I could go on. But overall, it would appear that Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians who are suffering for their faith at the hands of their Jewish brethren. And they're searching for answers as to how that could happen and why they should uh, should continue to endure it. What this passage is saying is that they need to not only endure such suffering, but they need to come to the aid of those who are already experiencing persecution for the faith. Because when Jesus returns... That's the basis by which he'll discern which disciples are true and which are false. 
In other words, the, the, the nakedness, hunger, imprisonment, etc. depicted in this passage, that's a picture of, of suffering generally, sure. But in particular, it's a picture of the kind of suffering that Christians are experiencing for their faith in persecution specifically. In fact, you skip forward in time and you put this judgment in its future historical setting, post-rapture and post-Armageddon. And Jesus is speaking these words to the survivors of the Great Tribulation. You remember what sort of things Jesus said would occur during the Great Tribulation, don't you? He said there would be intense persecution, followed by great apostasy as apostates turn on their former brothers and sisters and hand them over to the religious and secular authorities. This persecution apparently begins in Israel as unbelieving Jews persecute their believing countrymen, but then it reaches a climax under the rule of the Antichrist who tries to eliminate not only Israel, but even the church itself. So now, does it make sense what Jesus is saying here? The battle of Armageddon is over. The Antichrist has been defeated. And now Jesus enters into judgment by essentially asking those who dwell on the earth, whose side were you on? Here's how I know. When my people were suffering, what did you do? Did you aid them? Did you give them assistance? Or did you help hunt them down? Maybe you didn't help hunt them down, but you just stayed silent. Either way, if you didn't stand with them in their distress, neither will I stand with you now. The way I know whether or not you belong to me is whether or not you stood with them in the day of their affliction. Contextually, this gives meaning to the talents. Once again, I said that there's no clear correspondence between the talents and any particular item for the Christian life. The parable of the talents is just that. It's a parable, meaning it's a story that illustrates a spiritual truth. All the talents do is capture in succinct form the relationship between responsibility, stewardship, and reward. However, when we see Jesus deliver this teaching about how judgment will work, and we see it coming so closely on the heels of the parable of the talents, we have to conclude that if the talents represent anything, they point not to evangelism, but to love. We've said that Jesus demands a positive expression of righteousness, that He demands love. Well, here we see that it's love for the brethren in particular that He's looking for. And this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, just a couple of days later, he would go on and say the exact same thing during the Last Supper. There he would associate uh, Branch's fruit with love. And he would say to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is important. What this passage is saying is that if you want to know whether or not you are saved... This is one thing you look for. You look for love for the brethren in your life. Salvation is expressed in love for the church. Now, of course, this this passage is written to encourage its readers to practice this kind of love, particularly within the context of persecution. But the core principle here, that salvation is connected with love for the body of Christ, is universal whether it's expressed in the hardship of persecution or whether it's expressed in the relative ease of religious freedom, the principle that Jesus explains here still applies. Those who go to heaven are those who love the body of Christ. What I want to do with the time we have left here this morning is is briefly explain for you why this is so. Once again, just as in the parable of the talents, Jesus is making 
an association with a particular external behavior in salvation. Here, that behavior is love for the church. Why, then, does Jesus make that the standard? What is it about love for the church that reveals whether or not a person is saved, truly saved? Here are three reasons. Number one, number one, the Christian expresses love for Christ through their love for his body. The Christian expresses love for Christ through their love for his body. Of course, one of the major themes in this passage is the connection between Jesus and the suffering brethren. This is highlighted once again by the fact that both the sheep and the goats, actually, are surprised to discover that their actions in any way reflected on their relationship with Jesus. They, they didn't understand how they had loved or cared for Jesus. Jesus explains that as they had acted towards the suffering brethren, so they had acted towards Him. So love for the brethren demonstrates the love for Christ. They are one and the same. There appears to be at least a couple of different reasons for this kind of close identification. First, according to the New Testament, Christ regards the church as His brothers, like He sees us as members of God's family. Chronologically, this familiar union with Christ occurs when we believe. Paul calls the Holy Spirit, quote, the spirit of adoption in Romans 8, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, when we're regenerated by the Spirit, we are formally adopted into God's family and become co-inheritors of the world with Christ. So that's when we're officially bound with Christ as a member of His family. However, however, that sort of familial affection apparently goes back even further to a time that even precedes the Incarnation. Because in Hebrews 2, 14-15, it states that, quote, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He, that is Christ, He likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It goes on to say then in Hebrews 2.17 that, quote, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What those verses are saying is that since it was necessary for there to be a human mediator to atone for man's sin and intercede before God, Jesus, in regard for his brothers, willingly became like us, so he could pay our penalty on our behalf. Point being, this passage is saying that there was a brotherly affection that Jesus shared for us even before the Incarnation, which actually even motivated the Incarnation. This brotherly affection, it would seem, is tied up in the elective love of the Father. Before the foundations of the world, God regarded the elect as His children. He loved them with that kind of fatherly affection. And because of that love, it was fitting for Jesus to join us in our humanity in order to redeem us. So there's a familial union that Jesus enjoys with the church, and which even motivated His death for our sins. And then second, there's also a spiritual union that every believer presently enjoys with Christ. It is through this same Holy Spirit by whom uh, we receive our formal adoption into God's family, it is through this Holy Spirit that Christ also indwells the believer. That is to say, it is through the Holy Spirit who is sometimes in the New Testament called the Spirit of Christ, it is through Him that Christ resides in us. As Paul says in Romans 8.10, but Christ is in you 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In Ephesians 3.17, Paul also prays for the Ephesians, quote, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, it's not just a relational union that we share with Jesus, but an actual spiritual one as well. If you believe in Christ, then right now, today, Jesus is present in you in a mysterious sense. What this means is that when something is done to one of Jesus' disciples, it's not just done to the disciple. It's done to Jesus by virtue of both the familial and spiritual union that the believer enjoys with Christ. So assuming that love for Jesus is a genuine expression of regenerative faith, which I I think we have to assume is true, don't we? Assuming that love for Jesus is a genuine expression of regenerative, saving faith, then guess how you'll know that you love Jesus? I mean, He's not here, right? He's not present on the earth. So how will it be evident whether or not a person loves Jesus? Well, they'll demonstrate it through an active care for His body. This is important. Love is not expressed simply by confession. Like we can lift up our hands and cry out, Lord, you are my hope. Lord, you are my salvation. My heart belongs to you. We can do that all day long. It doesn't mean anything if it is not matched with love for the body of Christ. That's what James points out in James 2 when he says that faith without works is dead. If you remember, he's not talking about just any kind of works when he says that. No, he actually puts that statement within the context of love. He begins the passage by saying, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? He then concludes by saying, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Do you know why James can say that? He gives the answer over in James 3 when he speaks about the need to control the tongue. He says that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, and that, quote, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. You see, James understood the connection between people, and particularly the body of Christ, and God. And so he understood that to claim love for God while ignoring his people was nothing more than vain hypocrisy. Again, a confession of love for Christ that is unmatched with a love for His body means nothing. This is why Paul could go on and on at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13 about how if we speak with tongues and prophecy and even have faith as to move mountains but have not love, it is nothing. Love for Christ is expressed in a love for His church. To put it in the words of 1 John 4, 20-21, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if you want to know whether or not you're ready to meet Jesus, this is the question you have to ask yourself. Do I love the body of Christ? And again, the answer to that question isn't as simple as mouthing the words. Anyone can say they love the church. What have you done to show it? That's what James is driving at in James 2. Faith is active. Faith lives. So what do you do to express love for the body? Where is the fruit of your confession? 
You go to the context here in Matthew 25, and love for Christ will be expressed by a love for brothers and sisters suffering affliction. Now, perhaps we're not experiencing persecution, but there are still many ways that you can express an act of love for the church. If you're a believer, there should be something there in your life that reveals that. And just like I've said before, we're not talking perfection. It's not the amount of care that matters, but the mere existence of it. Because again, what we're looking for is not the perfection of faith, but the presence of it. There should be something in your life that demonstrates a real concern for the body of Christ, who is the closest thing to the visible manifestation of Christ on this earth. If there's not that kind of love, then you need to go back and assess whether or not you really love Jesus. Again, I've stated this over the past few weeks, but let me say it again to make this clear. If there is not love in your life, the answer is not to fake it. Just changing your behavior. No, the point that we saw with the third slave last week is that he did not obey because he had a deficient view of the master. He was not rooted in grace. So if you have not love, you don't fix that by just going and adding a bunch of works to your life. No, you go back to the well of grace. And you remember the goodness of your Savior. And it's as you see His goodness and His beauty, and as you love what you see in Him, that you will willingly and with eagerness develop a natural love for the body He died to redeem. So if you assess your life and you see that there is not love for the body of Christ, what you need to do is go back and see if you are really rooted in a confidence and enjoyment of His grace. Because love for Jesus is expressed in a love for His body. This is the first reason why Jesus connects love for the body with salvation. Let's look now at reason number two. Jesus connects love for the body with salvation because number two, the Christian identifies with Christ through their love for the body. This point is simple, but it's also subtle and I think often overlooked. So we can be brief with it, but I don't think we should, it should be missed. Let me state it one more time. The Christian identifies, identifies with Christ through their love for the body. Just a few minutes ago, I mentioned Hebrews 2 and how Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he could be made like his brethren in all things. I think this passage illustrates this point well. What this passage says is that even before Jesus became a man, he possessed a love for the elect. And the way he expressed that love was by joining with them, by becoming one of them. He didn't just stand aloof and say, those people over there are my brothers. No, the fact that he regarded them as brothers meant that he needed to become like them. He had to become one of them. That dictated the necessity of the incarnation. This is what a person does when they love someone. They want to be with them, among them. They will even sacrifice if necessary in order to have fellowship with them. Well, as a person goes to these links to join in that kind of fellowship, the natural result is they will often be identified with those with whom they fellowship. You'll remember this is exactly what happened to Jesus as he spent time with the tax collectors and sinners. He was labeled guilty by association. He didn't join in their sin, but because he spent time with them, he was personally labeled a glutton and a drunkard. And there are all kinds of examples of this kind of thing. I mean, if you were to go work with the enemy during a time of war, you wouldn't be regarded as an American. You'd You'd be called a traitor. Your willingness to give aid to the enemy identifies you with the other side. 
If you were to give aid to a criminal, you'd likewise be charged as an accomplice in the, accomplice in the crime. Surely you've experienced this kind of thing before, and it's not always in a negative sense. It's just the natural result of fellowship with someone. As you love them, as you give them assistance, you're identified with them. Well, this is what happens when you love the body of Christ, too, particularly when you join them in their suffering. Again, that's the context that Jesus provides here. He warned His disciples that they would suffer. In the Sermon on the Mount, He even said that they were blessed when they were persecuted. Because so also were the prophets persecuted before them. Well, as Jesus saw his brother suffering, he didn't think it fitting for him to stand aloof. So what did he do? He he took on flesh and blood to give them aid and to be in fellowship with them. And then guess what happened as a result of that love? He became identified with them and he joined them in their sufferings. You go to times of persecution and this is what is bound to happen. Any assistance rendered to the persecuted will mark you off as one of them as well. And it will require you to share with them in their suffering. That's what happened, for instance, to Jewish sympathizers in Nazi Germany during World War II. They were often put to death for their willingness to help the Jews. It's been the same way with the church during times of persecution at various points in history. And I guarantee you, that in the future, the same principle will will be at work during the Antichrist's reign of terror. To thwart his efforts at persecution will be to join with the persecuted and so to share in their fate. Do you know what Paul realized when he suffered this type of persecution? He suffered it himself. Do you know what he realized about it? He realized that as he suffered, he was experiencing a unique kind of fellowship with Christ. He understood that as he suffered, He was suffering as an extension of Christ on the earth. Jesus spoke about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The persecution was really directed at Jesus through the disciples. Well, Paul says in Colossians 1, 24-26, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. This is what happens when you love the body of Christ in times of affliction. You're identified with them. And as you're identified with them and share in their afflictions, you're actually united to Christ and join in His affliction. The pain they suffer is aimed at Him. And by willingly joining with them in that suffering through your care for them, you express your identification with Christ Himself. That's true of persecution, but it's not only true of persecution. The same principle holds true in times of relative religious freedom as well. If you notice, the main context of the suffering described in this passage is likely persecution, but it's not exclusive to persecution. Jesus speaks of visiting the sick, for instance. That doesn't seem to be connected with any particular type of persecution. The hunger and nakedness spoken of here is also certainly relevant to persecution, though not particularly exclusive to it. Well, when you love a person who is suffering this kind of want, again, guess what happens? You willingly share in their affliction. By doing what is necessary to help them, you're taking their burdens on yourself. You're joining with them through your active fellowship in their suffering. And as you identify with them, Jesus says, you you identify also with Him. 
Again, he is in union with them. So for you to carry their burdens with them is to make an identification with Jesus himself. Thus, love for the body is an expression of faith. For the one who loves the body identifies with Jesus by taking part in his suffering. They are even made to look like him in their suffering. And this leads to our third reason why Jesus connects salvation with love. We've already seen that the Christian expresses love for Christ through their love for the body. We've also seen that they identify with Christ through their love for the body. Now, number three, Jesus connects love for the church with salvation because, number three, the Christian expresses faith in Christ through their love for his body. The Christian expresses faith in Christ through their love for his body. I want you to consider what we've talked about up to this point. Think for a minute of the trajectory of the last two points. The Christian expresses love for Christ through their love for the body. As they love the body by joining in their affliction, the Christian thus identifies with Christ by joining in his affliction. Well, based on this, what do you think is required to love the church with this kind of love? Go back to the context of today's passage, for instance. Why do you think someone might hesitate to render the kind of assistance that Jesus describes here? Why might they be reluctant to give food to the hungry, or to visit the sick, or to go to those who are in prison? There's a great risk, isn't there? I mean, there's a cost to that kind of love, isn't there? That kind of love requires sacrifice. That's the sort of price you have to pay to identify with Jesus. Again, Jesus already said that they mistreated the teacher, so if they they treated him that way, you can only imagine what they're going to do to his disciples. That means you take the risk of showing love for his disciples, and you're going to get caught up in that mess. Even set persecution aside, apply it to peacetime. There's still a cost to sharing the burdens of others. Your Christian brother is poor and in need of money. It's going to require sacrifice on your part. If they're sick or hurting, it's going to be an inconvenience to love them. You're going to have to set aside your wants and desires to attend to them. Do you know then what this kind of love requires? It requires faith. Incredible faith. I think this point is illustrated well in Hebrews 11, 23-26. Maybe go ahead and turn there and read along with me. Hebrews 11, 23-26. We already read from Hebrews 11 earlier today during our call to worship. There we saw how men like Abraham did what they did because they were looking ahead to a heavenly inheritance. Well, in Hebrews 11, 23 to 26, it says this with reference to Moses. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And the note here, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see what this passage is saying? This passage is saying that Moses willingly abandoned the comfort that he enjoyed in Pharaoh's household and instead identified with the people of God and even joined them in their slavery. And why did he do that? Why did he abandon the comfort and ease of royalty and trade it in for mistreatment as a slave? The author of Hebrews tells us it was his faith. He was looking to the reward. 
If you want to understand why the author of Hebrews includes this passage, maybe turn back a page over to Hebrews 10. This is how Hebrews 11, in which the author gives us these incredible examples of faith, this is how he introduces that chapter. Hebrews 10, 32-39, the author writes this. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live forever. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You know, it sounds like the audience of this book was enduring a situation, not unlike the one described by Jesus over in Matthew 25, doesn't it? In verse 33, it says that they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes they were partners with those so treated. They identified with those in affliction and joined in fellowship with them. In verse 34, it says that they had compassion on those in prison and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Again, their willingness to give assistance cost them dearly. And yet the author says that they accepted such such afflictions with joy. And why was that? Verse 34, he says that they did this since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. They endured because of the hope they had in heaven as a result of this suffering. Now, you'll note note that the author tells them to recall the former days. This is suffering that took place in the past. And by the exhortation that begins in verse 35, it would appear that a revival of this sort of mistreatment is being stirred up once again. Only this time, these same believers, these same believers who were so faithful before and who had so joyfully endured affliction, they're now starting to get cold feet. So what does the author tell them? He reminds them of their reward. And he encourages them to persevere by faith. And it is in in that context that he delivers the extended discourse on faith that we find in Hebrews 11. You see, there's a cost that comes with loving the body of Christ. It's going to cost you time and energy and resources. There are things you could do for you that you're going to have to forego if you're going to love the body of Christ. And the only thing that is going to motivate you to persevere and pay that price is the hope of a superior reward. And not one here on earth, but in heaven. And so this is why Jesus can say, the one who loves is the one who enters into my kingdom. It's not because there's any merit in that kind of love. Rather, it's because that love is an incredible expression of faith. It reveals where a person's hope is. Are they invested in heaven or on earth? It reveals where their trust is. Is it in the wealth of Egypt or the treasures of Christ? And so as you look at this passage, you need to ask yourself, where is my hope? Where is my trust? Is it in heaven with Christ or is it on earth with the things of this world? There's one clear way that you can know. And that's by the love you show towards the body of Christ. Are you willing to carry their burdens and identify with them in their suffering? Are you willing to forgo earthly pleasure for their benefit? If so, that's an incredible expression of faith in Christ. And if not, then your profession of faith is hollow and empty. Your faith is revealed 
by the degree to which you are willing to sacrifice the comforts of this world for the benefit of your Christian brothers and sisters. And once again, if you find that you do not love in this way, I'll just note the answer is not to simply change your behavior and be miserable. Remember what you see, what we see here in Hebrews 10 once again. Those Christians joyfully accepted the plunder of their property. Again, why did they do that? Why were they joyful about it? It's because they had confidence in a better possession, an abiding one. This means that if you have a hard time sacrificing for others, then the place to begin isn't simply with action, but with reflection. You need to consider once more how temporary the joys of this life are and how permanent are those of the next. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up yourselves, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So hopefully now you can see why Jesus connects Salvation with love. It's not because there's any merit in love, but rather because love is an expression of faith. In our evening discussion tonight, we'll try to discuss further how we can express this love and grow in this love. We have the theory down tonight. We'll try to get down to the application. But as we close the Olivet Discourse now, I'd just like to go back once again to where we started. And note that eschatology is not a fruitless study. Perhaps you remember that in my very first message on the Olivet Discourse, I explained that it's often said that a study of Bible prophecy is irrelevant, that it's merely theoretical and doesn't have any great bearing on how we live today. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good, it's sometimes said. How absolutely wrong is that kind of thinking? I think what we can see in this morning's passage is that it is our hope in heaven that fuels our love in the present. In other words, it is heavenly mindedness that drives our earthly good. I sincerely doubt the reason why the church's influence seems to be waning in today's culture is because Christians think too much of heaven. I'd wager rather that it's because they think too little of it. With this in mind, let's close our study of the Olivet Discourse by praying that God would use what we've learned over the past few months to stoke a fire in us in our love for one another and for the world. Let's pray.